Let's seek the the Lord together here. Father in heaven, again, we thank You so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We praise You for Your love. We praise You for Your watch care over us, for esteeming us so highly that You take care of even the smallest of things and that You uh, teach us day by day about Your love and Your character. We praise You for that. We praise You that we still have an opportunity in this country uh, to come together and worship You in spirit and in truth and and uh, to fellowship with like believers. We know the time is coming when um, that will be more and more difficult, uh, Father. But we praise You for, uh, for, uh, for Your long-suffering and patience. We thank You so much for uh, sending Your Son Jesus uh, to come and to show us how to live, become like one of us, live a righteous life, uh, showing us who You really are, Father. And we appreciate it so much. We, uh, at times in our lives, maybe uh, didn't have a true and clear picture of Your character. And we feared You. But because of Jesus, we, we love You, Father. And uh, we love Jesus. And we are very thankful uh, that uh, He has shown uh, Your true character to us and that He has taken uh, our place and died a, a death that we so deserve, Father. And we... We are very thankful for that, and we, we pray that you will forgive us our sins. We claim the blood that Jesus shed for us, and, and it uh, grieves our heart, Lord, that uh, we've caused such things. Uh, but, Lord, we, we thank you so much for providing a way for us to be a part of your family again, and, and uh, it is very much appreciated. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who you pour out upon your people to guide and direct us and to point out to our sins and, and to help us, Lord, in the smallest of matters in our day-to-day life. And we're thankful for the angels that uh, minister for us and, and watch over us and keep us safe from the evil one and, and help us in our walk each day. And Father, we, we come before you and thank you for uh, the necessities of life that you provided. We all have homes and we, we have food and uh, we have what we need, uh, each and every one, just as you've promised. We praise you for keeping your word, and that you're not a liar. You're someone who can be trusted. And uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for all your goodness and care. And Father, at this time, we lift up all of those on our prayer lists. Um, we lift up those who uh, have uh, tremendous health issues. Uh, we pray that you'd be very near to them and heal them. Um, our good friend, Ruby, uh, out in Colorado, she has an uh, important appointment on Friday. You know everything involved with that. Uh, it's in the morning at 9. Uh, we pray that you'll send angels to be with her and the Holy Spirit to be with her and that uh, your will will be done in that case. Uh, whatever it is, Lord, that uh, we'll be satisfied that your will has been done. Uh, Sister Valerie wants, uh, Lord, to... Uh, to ask that you be very near to her family. We all pray for our families and our loved ones, those who do not know you yet, Lord. And maybe even some of those who may be rejecting you now, we pray that you be very near to them. We know that you do not give up without a fight. And we pray that you will send multitudes of angels to remove the forces of darkness around our families and friends and neighbors, that they may come to see you and your love and your care. 
Uh, we pray, Lord, for our project up in Gary and Merrillville. Uh, we thank you for the blessing of last Sunday. We pray that hearts will be touched and more and more people will come as we uh, work. We know that the enemy is hard at work against uh, this evangelism. We pray for angels that excel in strength to bind these forces of evil, that your will will shine forth throughout that community. And we can have a, a group there and grow and spread the message. Uh, Rollins' mother goes in for uh, evaluation for her driving. We pray, Lord, that's very interesting. We pray that she failed this uh, because she's she has uh, since the stroke and her age. She's uh, it's not safe for her to drive anymore, Lord, and and uh, it's not safe for her health or for anyone else. And and uh, we ask that uh, she will accept this uh, with a a satisfied heart. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much again for the Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity to rest from our labor and our employment. And Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit give me the right words to speak. This can be a touchy subject to some. Uh, I pray that hearts will be open to the truth and give me words to speak. May they be words of compassion and love and truth that your name may be glorified in all things. I thank you so much, Lord, for Jesus and for answering this prayer in his blessed name, for he's worthy. to begin our study uh, this morning uh, in the book of Revelation. If you take your Bibles, please, and I hope you have your Bibles, and turn to Revelation chapter 12. For many of you who are joining us in the Seventh-day Adventist faith and are uh, students of prophecy, you are very familiar with this chapter in Revelation. There are a number of things I could preach upon and teach out of this chapter, but I want to I want to hone in on one specific thing. Because you see, we live in a time, uh, friends, uh, of uh, Jesus' soon return. And one of the things, the final test, really has to do with character. What character we have. Do we have the character of Christ? Uh, our advocate and example in all things, or do we have the character of Antichrist, the beast, the dragon? And uh, so, um, as I read and study the Bible, the Holy Spirit teaches me more and more about the character of God, which tells me uh, where I am in my walk. And so, um, just about anything you will cover in the Scriptures and for uh, present truth uh, should be dealing with character in some way or another. There will be a theme of character in everything that's that's taught, even in prophecy. And this is something that we can find here in Revelation chapter 12. And in particular, let's go uh, down to verse 7. I want to read, uh, <clears throat> begin reading there in uh, Revelation 12 and verse 7. And there was war in heaven. What an unbelievable thing to imagine. You know, everything was perfect. And yet, war broke out. 
there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Now, we uh, Bible students of prophecy understand that uh, the books of many things in, in, in uh, uh, the book of Daniel uh, and some of the minor prophets that have prophecies, uh, but in particular, apocalyptic type prophecies that you find in Daniel and in Revelation are very highly symbolic. And uh, I'm not going to go through all the different symbols and such. We'll do that at another time. But, but here we see that Michael, and Michael is a name uh, referring to Jesus Christ, the leader of all the angels, the Son of God. And it says that uh, there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels, those would be the righteous angels, fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. We'll get a description of who this dragon is in a moment. And it says, and prevailed not. So here the dragon and his angels are fighting against Christ and the righteous angels, and, and he didn't prevail. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. In other words, they could not stay in heaven. They created this war, began with them, they were removed. And notice verse 9, and the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent, here's the de- definition of who, who is this dragon. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So, I want to stop there. There, Of course, again, there are a number of things that we can learn prophetically about this, but we can also learn some character things about this, and one in particular that I want to uh, delve into. We have this dragon, and I've entitled this study Whispering Dragons. We see here that the dragon or Satan, the adversary originally named Lucifer, right? He began a war with Christ and his angels in heaven and Satan was cast out of heaven. But there were many who went with him. Isn't that true? He wasn't just the only one that was cast out. Isn't that accurate? In fact, if you look back to verses 3 and 4, it tells us that uh, the words of Lucifer, not just his actions, it was the words that that prompted the action. The words of Lucifer drew a third of the angels over to his side against God, and they were cast out too. How is it possible? How is it possible for Lucifer to convince a third of all the angels in heaven to rebel against their Creator? How is that possible? Lucifer was well loved by all the angels in heaven. I mean, after all, he was a covering cherub. He stood next to the Godhead. Inspiration tells us that angels love to execute his commands. And this is one of the things, because of that love for him, that trust that these angels had for him, It made his his methods, they were stealth messages, and it made him more successful because of that trust, because of that love. His most effective method was what I call his whisper campaign. 
He would talk to the angels alone, you see, in secret. Individually, pull them aside, or in small groups, telling each what the other was supposed to have said. So he would go to a particular angel, let's say, and be talking to them, and he would intimate things, see? Well, you know, I was talking to so-and-so, and uh, you know what he said? da 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 Hmm? It wasn't for me. And and then he would go to the other angel who he had been talking about and it, you know after he got a response from uh, the uh, uh, the first angel and he'd say you know what so and so said? You see what I'm saying? It was a whisper campaign. And he did it in, in uh, secret. And the entire intent of it you see was to paint God as unfair and controlling, and himself as only interested in fairness and liberty. You know? Dealing with a particular issue that uh, is very sensitive, not here, but it's kind of led me to this study uh, again and to study these things out. And, and uh, this has been the modus operandi of some people supposedly in the faith. You know, uh, a number of the organizational meeting, meetings that we've had that have fallen apart because of, of whispering campaigns, because of whispering dragons who, who get little, pull people aside during a particular meetings and, and whisper things and do things about this person or that person, and before you know it, you have division. And this is a model that we've seen in heaven, the very beginning, friends. I'm going to read to you out of the Great Controversy, page 495. It says, Leaving his place, is speaking of Lucifer, of course, leaving his place in the immediate presence of God. Now, wouldn't that... When you leave God, you're not on very good ground, are you? But it says, Leaving his place in the immediate presence of God, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels... Notice what she says here. She says, working with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under an appearance of reverence for God. Man, parallels I've had in experiences just... You ever get that where the the hair on the back of your neck kind of raise up? (laughs) If you have hair on the back of your neck. You see the same spirit of Antichrist working in God's church. It's remarkable. Working with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under an appearance of reverence for God. He endeavored to excite what? Dissatisfaction concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings. Notice this. Intimating that they imposed an unnecessary restraint. He has been so successful in that. Most of Christendom are lined up with that argument. That God's law somehow imposes an unnecessary restraint against our our choice, our will, our liberty. But notice that she says they're intimating 
Let me ask you, have you ever experienced this type of concealed uh, intimation before? Someone will call you. Someone will text you or email you to share what someone has said about so-and-so in an effort to gain uh, sympathy for their cause. Friends, if you haven't experienced that, then you're very blessed. Because it's not only rampant in our world today, it's not, not only considered normal behavior in society today, I mean, they actually have a television show called The Gossip Girl, for goodness sakes. Well, it's maybe old, I don't know. But you, you could run down a list on uh, uh, television and movies, and this is, a, this is prevalent. But not only do you see it rampant uh, in the world, which can be expected, but it's very much present among God's people many of which have no clue that they're using the devil's crowning method to deceive others. See, Satan used his words in subtle ways to deceive. And it is how we use our tongue, friends, that I want to study at this time. You see, we're either going to bring glory to God or to the devil by the use of the tongue how we speak, what we say. Now, the Bible uses a variety of colorful words to describe the uh, fruit of this, uh, I think of James, you know, this rampageous little member of the body, the tongue, not very big. Among them is one that surely has earned a reputation as the cruelest in the Scriptures, if you study it out, and that is whisperers. Whispers. Hey. You know, the kids often, I, I would tell them as they were growing up, and they'd, they'd get, you know, we'd be together and they'd lean over and whisper some nights, and I would tell them it is rude to whisper in the presence of others, at least then. And they never could understand that. Usually, whispering doesn't have anything good about it. Now, there, of course, there are cases. Don't get me wrong. It's not 100%. You know. But usually, you know, who was the first whisperer in heaven? It was Lucifer. Now, I'm not saying whispering is wrong. Don't get me. Uh, don't misunderstand. Uh, but uh, you find in the Scriptures that this is, uh, this is one of those words. That, and, and when you think about it, it kind of has a hiss of the serpent in it, doesn't it? Whispers. Right? In fact, if you look at this in the Greek, you find the word satoristus. Satoristus. It's Strong's number 5588, which is a noun that means a whisperer, secret slanderer. How do you like that? A secret slanderer, a detractor. But this word is also associated with the Greek word sistorismos, which is Strong's 5587, which interestingly means a whispering, secret slandering of the magical murmuring of a charmer of snakes. Isn't that interesting? So, really, it does have the hiss of the serpent, doesn't it? We've heard of a snake whisperer. Yeah, snake whisperers. In the Old Testament, it's a verb from an unused, really, Hebrew root word meaning to roll to pieces. 
which is rather interesting. It's been transliterated as the word nirgan, which is Strong's number 5372, if you want to look this up. And I encourage you always to study it for yourself. But that word nirgan means to murmur, whisper, backbite, slander, a tale-bearer. Isn't that interesting? You ever run into anybody who likes to tell tales? Very imaginative, uh, highly embellished, you know, tales? Yeah, my wife said your uncle, and yeah, I have to think about that. Uncle Kenny was that way. Now, it doesn't take really any profound insight to understand what the wise men meant in Proverbs 16.28 when he wrote, A whisperer separateth chief friends. So a whisperer can cause division between best friends. In fact, if you go back and you look in Leviticus 19, in particular verse 16, the Levitical laws gave a specific commandment against the practice of gossip, gossip, I'll get it right. Gossip and slander. My mouth's rather dry. I'm sorry, friends. All that whispering, you know, saying whispering's got my tongue all messed up. But there was a commandment against that practice, against gossip and slander. Uh, Leviticus 19.16 says, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among the people, among thy people. And you know, as you, as you read the Bible and you study the Bible, there are many types of sin. Well, God despises all sin, doesn't He? Uh, but many of these sins are associated with... Uh, that we look at sins, they're, they're associated with abominable perversions and deviations, you know. Yet, it is obvious that God doesn't classify sin sometimes as we do, oftentimes probably as we do, we have a tendency to look upon certain sins as quite respectable. Do you know that? They're generally, uh, when you think about it, they're like refined sins of the Spirit, like pride or envy or jealousy along that line. Um, And since they, they don't make embarrassing physical displays, we tend to tolerate them as someone's personal quirk. Yeah, they're kind of quirky. Yeah, they're kind of, you know... We kind of reason it away. On the other hand, we recoil from another category of sins with justifiable hatred and even revulsion. You know, those fleshly indulgences like adultery or homosexuality, uh, murder and stealing. They're viewed as positively disrespectable, intolerable. But yet the other ones get a break. Now, do we have any reason really to believe that God draws such distinctions in the qualifying of sin? No, friends. The answer is found right in the middle of the Bible where we find listed the seven deadly sins that God hates. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 6, you can find them in verses 16 to 19. Proverbs 6. Verse 16, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. Now, think about that. We think of some of the more uh, refined sins, like I, I said, the more internal. They're not 
necessarily shown in physical things, you know, pride, envy, jealousy, although they will lead to that, of course. But then we look at stealing and murder, homosexuality, adultery. Those are things that are so intolerable and disrespectful. But what I'm trying to say is God looks at it differently. All sin is an abomination. But these are seven things that are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Isn't that interesting? But I want to I want to concentrate on this one. A false witness that witness that speaketh lies. You know, this is just another way of describing a whisperer. Now let's think about that word again for a moment. A whisperer speaks in all languages. He crosses all boundaries, and he's a member of all churches. Sad though it may be. He's the bearer of false rumors and reports. You know, friends, we really can't deny that that there's a natural uh, perverse bent to every human mind to speak evil of other people. That's something that we battle against, every one of us. That's that carnal nature. And probably no one will ever be able to explain it fully, but we know it's there because we've indulged in it at some time or another, haven't we? The person who can find flaws in others is making himself look better by comparison. And the flesh will resort to anything in order to satisfy its demand to be the center of attention, to lift itself up. We study today about what is true love. It doesn't vault itself. It's not puffed up. See? That love of God. But if you don't have that love, if you're not born again, if you're not striving uh, against the carnal nature, you will have done this at some time. The strangest thing about this sin is how it can so easily beset those who are saints in every other respect. Even where the entire being is brought into submission to Christ. That whispering dragon of the body often keeps running out of control. James makes the astounding statement that the man who finally tames what I refer to as this whispering dragon is perfect. Isn't that interesting? If you can tame the dragon. Let's look at James 3. And begin with verse 2. James says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Isn't that interesting? And that's one reason why I say, you know, you've heard of dragons and fire-breathing dragons. Here James referring to the tongue as something that can kindle a fire. And the tongue is a fire, a 
world of iniquity, he says. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea, which is all the animal kingdom he's, he's mentioning, is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Now, it doesn't mean, he's not saying here that the tongue can never be brought under control. That's not the context of what he's saying. But that sinful, uh, the sinful human nature lacks the power to subdue it. We can't do it of ourselves. Divine grace alone can accomplish that. The Holy Spirit alive in us can do that, friends. Perhaps God hates this sin so much because it's often done with a flare of religious purity. Usually, the gossiper speaks as though he is defending. Have you ever run into this? They're defending some violated biblical principle. And in order to justify the conscience, he only implies or intimates that the evil has been committed. You know, one false insinuation has more power than a hundred good deeds. I've heard that said. And a slanderous whisper never dies out until it has scorched and slashed an innocent soul into the dust just as a dragon would. I mean... Friends, when you study this and you contemplate this and you look at this, more of a surface reading, no wonder the Word of God labels it as one of the seven deadly sins of man. Jesus called Satan the father of lies because he told the first one. Then he brought his trade to the Garden of Eden to use against our first parents. But please take note that the form of that lie was very subtle and very cunning. It was worded as a question. You read it in Genesis 3.1. The serpent said, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see the subtleness of it? Why did the devil ask such a question? I mean, he knew that God had not forbidden every tree in the garden. Only one had been restricted. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the only one. There was a lying intimation in the question he asked. You see, what he was doing was, he was raising doubt. He was raising doubt. It's like the old question, have you stopped beating your wife? There's an intimation there that you've always beat your wife. You know, we might not view such a practice as terribly wrong because we hear such statements almost daily from everybody around us. The most obvious practitioners, though, are politicians. Isn't that true? But Jesus still called it a lie to exaggerate, as Satan did, is to depart from the truth. And no amount of reasoning can hide the, the hard fact that it is a most despicable sin in God's eyes. By the time he confronted Eve in the garden, Satan had become a specialist 
in the art of exaggerating truth with beautiful, high-sounding words. As I said, he was the author of the first whispering campaign. And the devastating results prove what a monstrous evil it really is. Look at our world today, friends. And it started with a whisper from the dragon. Do Satan's modern disciples still use the half-truth, the gossip plan to weaken and destroy innocent people? Yes, indeed. You know, whisperers are still around and their campaigns have destroyed more souls than all the wars fought on earth. Did you know the whisperers, they don't always appear as the enemies of God. Did that serpent appear as an enemy of God? Because their whispers contain only intimations, you see. They always retain, and this is what gets me, they retain a legal loophole to avoid responsibility for the results of their work. Have you ever met somebody like that? Someone who always uses a legal loophole when speaking about someone else? You see, they they don't really whisper any details at all, just basic material to stimulate the imagination and start that rumor mill rolling. Then somebody picks it up. They add to it. And it passes on in a more exaggerated form. And by repetition, the, the story becomes increasingly horrible and a sensitive soul is left with a crushed spirit. And what can be said about the person who started it all? Perhaps he is one of the most faithful attendees and supporters of the church. His loyalty has never been questioned. He's as upright as one of the stone pillars in the sanctuary. And maybe just as cold and hard. Why did sepulchers full of dead men's bones, as Jesus said? This person would be outraged at the mere suggestion that he had anything to do with the tragedy. His self-righteous soul would be ready to blame anyone or anything except his own original whispered innuendo, which mushroomed so rapidly into a bomb of destruction. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 7, first two verses, He said, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And Paul expanded on that theme when he wrote in Romans 2 and verse 1, For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doeth the same things. Well, friends, is it true that we are guilty of the very sins we observe and condemn in others? You know, there's lots of examples in the Word of God. Let's learn a lesson from the account that we find in John chapter 8. This is the woman who was caught in adultery. You know the old saying, the finger you point at somebody else, you have three others pointing back at you. Is that true? Let's go to John 8. Let's look at verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. They'd caught her. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, 
this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? What are they trying to do? Are they really trying to remove sin from the church? Or are they using her to try to trap Jesus in His words? Look at verse 6 gives us an answer. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now see, by the law of Moses, if you're caught in adultery, you were taken to be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. And this is what they're doing. They're saying, okay, are you doing away with the law? And Jesus here says, if you really, you know, the principle is those who are without sin are the ones who take the sin out and, and uh, remove it from the church. We'll get to that in a moment. But then he goes down and he begins to write again on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So my, my question originally, in essence, was, are we guilty of the very sins we condemn in others? Well, more often than not, we are, aren't we? I mean, as the saying goes, it takes one to know one. Isn't that, isn't that the old saying? It certainly seemed to be the case with those men who brought the adulteress to Jesus for stoning. From the Ministry of Healing, page 88, notice what, what it says. Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer. That was They drew nearer to Jesus, urging the matter upon his attention. But as their eyes, following those of Jesus, fell upon the pavement at his feet, their voices were silenced. There, traced before them, were the guilty secrets of their own lives. Notice it wasn't the secrets of their lives, it was the guilty secrets, the sins that no one else knew about, supposedly. So when Jesus invited the ones without sin to cast the first stone, well, the plot against the one fell apart. The accusers slunk away one after the other as they recognized their guilt. However, friends, as I mentioned, the principle shouldn't be twisted in its application. Ministers are not to hesitate to speak out plainly against sin. Even though Jesus saved this frightened woman from the penalty of the law, He did not hesitate to label her actions as sin when He was talking to her alone. There's a principle there too that Jesus tells us about Matthew 18. He told her to go and what? Sin no more. 
So, God's ambassadors, God's ministers and and people are not necessarily being judgmental when they expound the Word of God to condemn disobedience. You see, the Word itself does the judging and condemning. It is never wrong. Let me tell you this. It is never wrong to condemn disobedience. It is wrong for an open sinner to carry out the judgment, for a secret sinner to carry out the judgment. That is the height of hypocrisy, friends. Something God hates. But it's right to condemn disobedience. I mean, Jesus, He didn't hesitate to speak strong, scathing words of rebuke to the hypocritical religious leaders who had no intentions to repent, but to those who recognized their guilt and desired deliverance. He provided protection from unnecessary public scorn and from condemnation. See, Jesus was compassionate. They didn't want to destroy their faith completely. And if the Master sought to spare this woman who was admittedly guilty and had been taken in the very act of adultery, how would He feel toward the innocent who had been unjustly accused on the basis of half-truths, false reports? Undoubtedly, Jesus would show these accusers a a flashback of their own ugly past and cause them to slink away in shame as well. That would be the hope, wouldn't it? Beloved, I tell you, it is a solemn thought. A solemn thought that each person must finally give an account of every word that we've spoken. Our Scripture reading lays it out. Jesus' own words. Matthew twelve thirty six and 37 but I say unto you that every idle word that man, that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. I mean, think about it. A record is being made in the books of heaven. Those phone conversations, those secret ones, are being preserved with all the original inflections and nuances. Every email sent, every word written or spoken in internet chat rooms or in private conversations, they're recorded as evidence either for or against you. Will we be happy to face all those words in the judgment? What about the idle chatter around the house? The unkind criticism of family or friend? What about the occasional flare or angry temper? We mentioned road rage a little bit earlier. What about truth spoken with the wrong spirit? Those men that brought this woman out who was caught in the very act of adultery, she had committed adultery and was caught in the act. It was the truth. I think every one of us can look back in shame upon words that never should have escaped our lips. Words that we would we'd give a fortune to recall and cancel out. But the damage is done. And no power on earth is able to change their influence. You can destroy a person's life with a single word uttered at the wrong time, with the wrong intent. 
me share this with you. It's from In Heavenly Places, page 175. Cultivate a prayerful frame of mind and educate the tongue to speak right words that will bless in the place of discouraging. Talk of the goodness, the mercy, and the love of God. Put away all unbelieving words and all that is cheap and common. That's interesting, isn't it? All that is cheap and common. Hmm. Consider that for a while. Let the words be sound words that cannot be condemned, and the peace of God will surely come to the soul. You know, besides the seven hateful sins listed by Solomon, other Bible writers uh, give long categories of special sins that God despises. I'm thinking of Paul in Romans chapter 1. He goes through a list. Verse 29, he says, "...being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers..." Isn't that interesting? backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing, get this, he says, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of, what's he say? Death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Well, friends, you'll notice that the tongue is well represented here in this list. The whisperers and the backbiters are right alongside murderers and haters of God. I hope that you can see that the Scriptures declare that those who misuse the power of speech can be destroyed for it. I hope you're, you're seeing that. To speak evil of others is a very, very serious violation of God's law. We've got to be very careful in our words. The psalmist said in Psalms 101.5, Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. That's what he's saying here. David asks a question in Psalms 15, verses 1-3. to 3. He asks these questions. He says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And the answer, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Who's going to abide with God? Not the whisperers. Not the backbiters. Not the lying tongue. Well, you know, you might say, but I don't say things that aren't true about my neighbor. You know, why say anything if you can't find something good to say? How often do you pray for that person? What's the old saying? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. You know, one of the most famous biblical records of whisperers at work is found in the Old Testament story of Nehemiah. If you you know, study and read the book of Nehemiah, you'll find this out. 
Nehemiah was one of the great heroes, I think, of the faith. And uh, he was called to rebuild the walls there at Jerusalem. And Nehemiah became a victim of a whispering campaign, these whispering dragons. And as he struggled to carry out his appointed mission, a malicious opposition program was organized against him. Three men were at the head of this effort to sabotage the construction plans. Their name was Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gashmu the Arabian. And the Bible names them. Sometimes it's good to have your name mentioned in the Bible. Other times it's not good to have your name mentioned in the Bible. Their tactics were psychologically designed to knock out the builder within a few days. Do you know that? Nehemiah's enemies opened their campaign with an attack of ridicule. It's the way the devil works. Jesus was ridiculed. They made a big joke out of the wall that he was building, claimed that a fox brushing against it would destroy it. They ridiculed the work. When you're doing the work of the Lord, have you been ridiculed? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Well, when that didn't work, they tried an armed attack. But what had Nehemiah done? He put weapons in the hands of all the workmen and kept right on building, kept right on doing the work. Then they tried to reach him from the inside by hiring counselors to give him dangerous advice. All of those strategies collapsed one after another as Nehemiah kept his course to finish the job of restoring the walls. Finally, these three men put their heads together and they came up with an orchestrated plan to slander Nehemiah by a false report. They felt he could take leave of his project by sheer force of public opinion. Are you swayed by public opinion? You know, friends, when it comes down to the the final issue, the Sabbath issue, the mark of the beast, you're going to be ridiculed. There may be physical attacks upon you. There will be people trying to counsel you that you're wrong. Public opinion will be raised up against you. Where will you stand? If you're not faithful in the small things, friends, what are you going to do when the bigger things come? These men thought that they could get public opinion on their side and raised up, and it'll take care of Nehemiah. They circulated a letter. You find it in Nehemiah 6. Verse 6 states there, It is reported among the heathen. Why do we care what's reported among the heathen, friends? This is what's said though. It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it. Well, he was a heathen. Isn't that right? He was an Arabian. That thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king according to these words. Now notice how 
these media experts composed their news releases. To sound familiar, it's reported, and Gashmu saith it. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Many good people have been discouraged from their ministry for God by those kinds of clever inferences. Oh yeah, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Nehemiah have been dead for a long time, friends, but this fellow Gashmu, strangely enough, he's still alive. He's the author of, you know they say, Gashmu belongs to all races and languages. He has many aliases. Among them are these. They tell me, have you heard? And this is off the record, but you know, Gashmu, really, he's the symbol of the talebearer, the defamer, the slanderer, and the whisperer. And what the Bible tells us? Paul said, they that do such things are worthy of death. So it's pretty serious, isn't it? Do you say that your experience is not like Gashmu? You only tell a few friends about the bad report somebody else has already circulated? Take note that the Bible also condemns those who do that. Proverbs 17, verse 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. This inspired counsel reveals that true love for our brother would lead us to cover his transgression, friends. By repeating the report of his error, we break up friendships and destroy love. And it's against the principle that Jesus has laid out for us and how to reconcile. How to deal with such things. Let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 54. Who will take God's part against the evil speaker? Who will please God and set a watch, a continual watch, before the mouth and keep the door of the lips? Speak evil of no man. Hear evil of no man. If there be no hearers, there will be no speakers of evil. If everyone speaks evil in your presence, check him. Excuse me. If anyone speaks evil in your presence, check him. Refuse to hear him, though his manner be ever so soft and his accents mild. He may profess attachment and yet throw out covert hints and stab the character in the dark. Resolutely refuse to hear, though the whisperer complains of being burdened till he speak. Burdened indeed with a cursed secret which separateth very friends. You know, friends, sometimes we've got a situation, and I can't go into detail, of course, but through the study, it, there are times when we are to close our minds to such things. People go about saying, we need to have an open mind. I need to have a fair hearing. It depends on what it is, and there are times when no. If Eve would have closed her mind to the serpent, where would we be today? There's a lot of counsel. It says there are some times when you are to close your mind to such things. This is one of them. You know, sooner or later, each one of us becomes the victim of a whisperer. I mean, it, it, the rumor mill. It threatens our reputation, threatens our peace of mind. I told my nephew the other day, true character comes in the reaction. How do you react to different things that happen? 
How do we respond to such campaigns against us? Like I said, one, one thing is you, you close your mind to certain things. But one of the maybe more obvious things is give no cause for any true reports to be used against you. <laughs> Live a righteous life through Christ. When your enemies are raising false issues and using lying reports against you, stay at your appointed mission like Nehemiah did. Don't take your precious moments to chase the devil's rabbits, friends. You could do it the rest of your life and never get the wall completed that God has assigned you. Just keep at your work. Don't let your enemy prod you into retaliating. They brought Jesus before the the judge. and What was his response? He had none. He was silent. He was quiet. There are times when we should be silent and quiet. You know, the very moment we begin reacting in kind, we've totally lost the battle. We've actually forfeited any spiritual advantage that we had. And we may even lose our entire influence. If impatient words are spoken to you, never reply in the same spirit. Remember what Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And like I said, there is a wonderful power in silence. Words spoken in reply to someone who's angry sometimes serve only to exasperate the situation. But anger met with silence in a tender, forbearing spirit quickly dies away. We must also, and we've got to take this into account too, we've got to be careful just how we build that wall as well. I mean, we may have the truth, friends, but if we hit people over the head with the bricks, (laughs) well, we may not just inflict a serious spiritual injury, but possibly kill the spiritual life altogether. We must be wise in how we use the bricks in our wall building. We must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, as Jesus said. The words spoken in season and out of season may be good seed dropped in the soil of the soul. Psalms 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 14, Ye are the light of the world. So friends, how do we shine that light? Look at it this way. We are traveling through the fog of this world. And when we use God's Word with the the right motivation, that love of God to share the truth with others, it'll be like a a good set of fog lights. (laughs) It'll give us vision to see the road. But if we have the wrong motivation to share the truth, it'll be like having the high beams on in the fog. Have you ever done that? Yeah, you can't see. It causes blindness and we'll not see the road and we may wind up in the ditch. Now I know, friends, I know that every one of us has struggled on both ends of the loose tongue problem. We all have. We all have. We've said words that that made us feel guilty and ashamed. 
And we've been the subject of angry tirades and verbal abuse. And we, some of us, have had rumors spread about us that are untrue. In any case, we've been driven to our knees, I hope, for assurance and, and hope from God. And without the help of Jesus, we've found our minds and bodies yielding to the control of the flesh. Isn't that true? In every situation. When you fall, you have taken your eyes off the Lord. Only those who have come to Jesus just as they are, He receives. And He converts by His love. Only those will have a right motivation to share Him with others. And by His grace, they will learn to bridle their tongue. Friends, we must be born again in Christ every day. And He will give us the power to control that whispering dragon. So we read in Isaiah 51, 16, And I have put My words in Thy mouth. So God speaking, And I have put My words in Thy mouth. And I have covered Thee in the shadow of Mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, Thou art My people. Friends, may we truly be the Lord's people and allow Him to put His words in our mouth, destroying the whispering dragon forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so very, very much for Your undying love for us, for Your principles of righteousness that You've shared to us in Your Word, for Jesus, who was a living example of these righteous principles. Father, we've all made mistakes Every one of us have said words out of line. Every one of us has a problem with our tongue, the things that we say. And we pray, Lord, that You will forgive us. We pray for grace and strength and care and the Holy Spirit to help us to bridle our tongue, to speak a good word in season, to be silent in season, to be a right example to all around us. May our words be uplifting in truth always. May it bring glory to Thy name. Father, we thank You so much for this Sabbath. We thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You for Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and for angels. We thank You for the house of fellowship and the brethren. And we pray, Lord, that You will continue to bless us on this most holy Sabbath day, which we thank You for as well. And we thank You for hearing this prayer as it is said in the name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen.